You're listening to Terms of Reference, and I'm Roberto DeVito. A few months ago, I ran across a book called The Voluntourist by an American writer and editor named Ken Budd. In 2005, Ken's father collapsed and died after a heart attack, and with his 40th birthday looming, Ken had a few questions about his own life that suddenly seemed more urgently in need of answers. The book covers his adventures as a voluntourist in six countries, travels he made with and without his wife, Julie, in pursuit of the answer to the question, what am I doing that matters? The book is very, very honest, uncomfortably so in some places, and it's a great read. Ken, thanks very much for being on the show, and before I ask you if you've found the answer, can you tell me why you thought volunteering, rather than, say, motorcycles and mistresses, was the right way to handle your midlife crisis? <laughs> Both of those options are very high maintenance, I think. Uh, I, I was looking for meaning, and I was trying to do, as you said, something that matters, and really there was a lot of serendipity involved here. I, I Through my job, an opportunity came up to volunteer in New Orleans, and it was about nine months after Hurricane Katrina, and without even thinking about it, I just I took it. And that sort of started the whole thing. There was no grand plan here to go off and try and save the world. Uh, it just sort of happened. Well, um, with the Katrina volunteering, what exactly did you do? I mean, I've read the book, so I know, but you know, for listeners, what was the job that you that you went down there to do? Uh, they it was a group called Rebuilding Together, and they were as the name states, you know, taking homes that had been severely damaged and refurbishing them. And they were looking for unskilled volunteers. I said, this is perfect because I have no skills whatsoever. I'm a, I'm a writer and editor. We have no skills. Uh, but I was impressed by the operation because they have contractors and skilled people who come in and do the serious stuff and they redo the wiring and the carpentry and people like me, they're gutting the houses, they're painting the houses, they're hauling garbage, which really did fit my skill level. Um, but it was valuable work, I think. And, and through everywhere I went, there was an intangible quality. And part of the intangible quality there, I think, was just seeing what this area was like. Because a lot of people had already forgotten at that point. And then you go home and you say, you know, I've been there and this is what I saw. And, you know, at that point, too, there weren't a lot of tourists in New Orleans yet. So it was important for the restaurant owners and the hotel people, and, and you could see it. They were thrilled that you were there. And I have never experienced the lovely service at an airport as I did from the TSA people in New Orleans at that point because everyone was just happy you were there. You, you know, I live in Japan, and after the tsunami, I was up there within a couple of days shepherding a European journalist around, and then I went up again a handful of other times. And the two things occur to me, you know, one is that although many, many foreigners, resident foreigners I know here have been up to that region um, to volunteer and, and just to check it out, not so many Japanese I know have done. Um, so that's kind of a weird thing that I, that I don't understand. But the, the second thing is that I tell all of my Japanese friends and acquaintances, you know, you, you've got to go and bear witness because it's just an astonishing thing, nature's power, and nature's power over us and the communities we build, and, you know, you've got to see it. And, and on the other side of that, people say, oh, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's war zone tourism, it's disaster tourism, you're just indulging yourself. Um, 
and I, I don't see it that way. And, and I think that you're exactly right. The thing that people who live in those places want the most is for life to return to normal, business to come back. Yeah, and that's a part of this that often gets overlooked. And I really did feel like the most important thing we did was just go there and spend money. I mean, I think that was the key thing. And it, it sounds like nothing, but that's it's it's big. That's that's how people get by, and they need the business. And and when you're there and you go home and say, "Oh yeah, I was in the French Quarter," it's it's fine. And then that that helps spread the word as well. And it's it's those sort of benefits that I think often get overlooked. So how long were you down there in New Orleans? You, you were right in New Orleans, I guess, yeah? We were working in eastern New Orleans, and uh, they did take us one day to kind of what was ground zero of the flooding by where the uh, the actual breach occurred. And, uh, you know, the thing about even where we were in eastern New Orleans is it was like a Star Trek episode where, you know, they land on the planet and, and there's, you know, they're checking the tricorders and there's no signs of life. That's how it was. You would stand on the street and you would look down and you would just see rows of empty houses everywhere you looked. And, and at the area by where the breach occurred, you, know, you would see watermarks everywhere. And this is where the water fell and settled. And where we were working, the watermarks were usually about by your knees. Here where the breach occurred, the watermarks are up by the roofs. And you realize these places were completely submerged. And, and we saw a car. And on the side of the car was painted DB. And I asked a guy there, I said, you know, what does that mean? And he said, it means dead body. And the, the thing is, when you see that, you know, it, it kind of makes the work more important. But it also, for me, I made you feel even more inadequate. <laughs> so sure, it was sure. it was a very humbling thing. And, 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 you know, I wondered about the disaster tourism aspect of it. And I had heard at the time there were bus tours that went through there. But I sort of agree with, with what you said. It's important for people to see this and understand it and to empathize and, and to look for ways to help out. Did you... I mean, I, I read in the book that in a couple of in a couple of the places that you did work, the homeowners stopped by or they were there helping at the same time. Did you have a lot of chance to talk to New Orleans natives? I mean, at, at that point, nine months after Katrina, were most people back in their homes or I guess not because they had to no. rebuild their homes totally? Most people were not back, and I had enormous respect for the people who did come back because – at that time, if you were living in this area, you know, none of the businesses had come back. And it was this sort of circle. Everyone was, you know, the homeowners were waiting to see if the businesses would come back. The businesses were waiting to see if the homeowners came back. And just to go to Home Depot, you know, that's, that's an ordeal. You know, you either have to go 40 minutes outside of the city or I'd heard stories about one Home Depot that was just could never keep things in stock. So it was not a normal situation. And, and no, most people... We're not there. And, and I did get a chance to interact with homeowners. And I remember one woman just had this look of amazement that all of these people had come to help her. You know, why me? It had that kind of look. And it was just, it was, it was nice to see. And I, and I did talk with another woman who showed me photos of her home. And it was just completely covered in mold. It was unlivable. And now this place was pretty close to being finished when I was there. And she was moving back in. And, and I will say I was back in New Orleans about a year ago. And the head of Rebuilding Together took me back to see some of these places, and, and they're functioning neighborhoods again. And we were driving through the city, and he pointed out, and he said, we've had 18,000 volunteers since the hurricane, and I guarantee you every one of these neighborhoods has been touched in some way by volunteers. In my conversations with a lot of people in the in the aid and development world, you know, people who have 
become professionals in the industry, most of them or many of them started out not with the idea that they would become aid and development professionals and, and get a bachelor's, get a master's, get a PhD and go to work for the UN three doors down from Ban Ki-moon, but they started with a volunteer experience, either, you know, in the Peace Corps or in, you know, the equivalent somewhere else. And I think most people have said to me, you know, we were there to help the local people, but what we were really doing was gaining experience of the world ourselves. And maybe showing the locals that if we're Americans, we're not wearing cowboy hats and carrying six shooters or... You know, if we're Chinese, we're not, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The, the main benefit is really just for yourself. Yeah, and mo- most volunteers that I've met say in very humble terms that I, I benefited more than the people I was trying to help. I'm sure it's true. And, and, and I mentioned the intangible qualities, and, and you sort of touched on that. To, to me, the biggest benefit was always that, especially when you're in another country, they're learning about you, and you are learning about them. And it changes the way we see each other. And it sounds very kumbaya, but yes. there really is truth in that. And, and I saw it again and again. I mean, that's what many people have said to me, and, and it's, it's probably in great part why the Peace Corps was initially funded. People disparage volunteerism, especially international volunteerism. But the U.S. State Department, for example, just spends hundreds of millions of dollars on cultural outreach to try to persuade people or communicate to people that Americans are not the monsters uh, <laughs> that uh, our television exports uh, show us to be. Well, it's interesting you say that because when I was in Costa Rica, uh, I was told by a local gentleman that most Costa Ricans think Americans are lazy. And I thought, you know, how can this be? You know, we have the American work ethic and but it's it's exactly what you just said. It's what they see on television, and that's how they form their impressions. And so they see a show like Friends, and everyone's sitting around drinking coffee, and that's their experience. But when you're there working with people, and you're eating and laughing and sweating, and it, it just completely changes how we see each other. Right. So Costa Rica was your next stop after New Orleans, and um, you said New Orleans, you had the opportunity through through work to go there, and then so you did, which probably many people would do. But I guess between that and the next destination, you developed the idea of doing something a little bit um, with, with with broader scope. Um, how did that come about in your mind? And then how did you go about choosing destinations and, and maybe shaping the project? Uh, well, you know, again, through my job, my, where I was working at the time, they had a kind of a mini sabbatical program. And you could take, you'd been there seven years you could take four weeks, and I added two weeks of vacation. I had these six weeks, and I thought, you know, after seeing how my dad died so suddenly, you know, life becomes very precious. And I thought, you know, I don't want to spend the six weeks, you know, eating cocoa pebbles and watching South Park. Not that there's anything wrong with that. So, I, but I wanted to try and do something meaningful, and I was starting to formulate this idea that the other thing that was driving this is that you know, my wife and I don't have kids. And I was sort of coming to terms with the fact that we never would have kids. And then I was developing this idea of, okay, if I can't have a child of my own, well, maybe in some minuscule, small way, I can help somebody else's child. And that led us to work for two weeks at a uh, elementary school in Costa Rica. Why Costa Rica? Or 
Um, you know, we were just at the time, it was someplace we hadn't been, and uh, it just, yeah, there was no, again, deep logic to it. It just, mm-hmm. later on, I was more conscious about where I wanted to go and, and things I wanted to do. But in this case, it, you know, we were looking around and it just sort of spoke to us. And so what sort of stuff did they need to have done in an elementary school in, in presumably rural Costa Rica? Uh, we were teaching English, and then what the principal, who he and I were sort of able to communicate, uh, my Spanish is so-so, his English was about the same, but we heard him telling the kids, you know, you need to learn English, it will help you in life, and it will help you economically. Uh, but the tricky thing we had there was that we thought we were going to be teacher's assistants, and uh, we got there, and I remember thinking, yeah, well, where the teacher is. <laughs> and then the woman at the placement sort of dropped us off and was like, okay, Godspeed. And we're like, oh no, we are the teachers. So that was sort of a shock and, uh, you know, an adjustment <laughs> for us to try and figure out just exactly what we were doing. So the that particular school, for example, do they have serial visiting teachers or was this sort of a, just a one-off? This was a new placement and as screwy as that setup was, I will give the organization credit that, you know, when we told them, listen, this isn't all that useful, it took us a week to figure out what we were doing. By the time we did, it's time to go. They then had three-month volunteers, and there was much more consistency. And and it was valuable for the school because, you know, the principal had very limited resources. And if he didn't have to bring in an English teacher, well, now he can invest in computers and other things. So, so I could see the benefits, and, and it seemed like a smarter way to go about it with longer-term volunteers. Right. You obviously gave or the organization solicited feedback from you. Did that happen with all of the organizations you volunteered with, or was that an exception? Uh, not all of them did, which I, I find surprising. You just think it would be a matter of course. But in this case, they did, and they clearly took it seriously because, like I say, it was a new placement, and I you could tell how the program changed, you know, based in part on our feedback. So, yeah, it didn't happen all the time, but mm. most of the time. Mm. Um, and how big was that community in Costa Rica where you where you taught? Uh, we were in a little town called uh, Ciudad Casado, which is in San Carlos. And the nice thing about it, from my standpoint, was that it wasn't a tourist town. I mean, this was the kind of town you, you went to to go somewhere else, <laughs> sort of my take mm-hmm. on it. You know, if you wanted to go to the mountains or go to the beach, but... But it was nice from that standpoint because you didn't see many gringos except right. for those who were there volunteering. Right. So then the third stop in your in your global odyssey was China, <laughs> which I know quite a lot about. I lived 13 years in Hong Kong. I've been to China probably 300 times. Um, so I really enjoyed that uh, section of the book. Why China? I mean, I guess you wanted to go there. Um, and then how did you find your volunteering opportunity there? Well, you know, at this point, uh, you know, I'd done the first two volunteer experiences, and then I kind of had said, okay, you know, I've done my little We Are the World thing, and it's time to be normal again. But I kind of began to realize, you know, well, wait a minute, this this was sort of the start of it. This wasn't the whole thing. And at that point, it really was more of a conscious decision of, I want to go places I have never been. I want to challenge myself. In, in Costa Rica, a volunteer had told me, you only learn about yourself when you're outside your comfort zone. And, and I took that seriously. And so I wanted to do things that challenged me physically, spiritually, emotionally. And so China, we were working at a special needs school. And uh, I had never been to China. Uh, I always wanted to go there. My dad had 
one of the most memorable trips of his life had been through China. Uh, so that was something that spoke to me, and I really wanted to go there. I don't have a lot of experience with special needs kids. I don't speak Chinese. Uh, as I always say, you can imagine what an asset I was to the operation there. But, you know, it was eye-opening to me on a couple levels. And the thing I had been told was that in China, the traditional belief of kids with developmental disabilities or autism, you know, they should be set aside somewhere and, and sort of hidden from view. And, and that's changing, and it's getting better, but it still exists. And yep. So the people, the women who formed this school, one woman in particular, I mean, they really did it with nothing and without support and just with a lot of grit and determination and love. And, you know, you see that and it just, this was a journey sort of driven by fatherhood, but it was the women who again and again impressed me and, and, and just, I mean, these women are my, my heroes. And, and we've talked a couple times about the intangible qualities of these trips. And the women who, these teachers, they work incredibly difficult jobs and, and I always felt like beyond what we did there to help just being there was the most important thing and, and we were a break in their routine and when I did something dumb they would laugh and that was I think as important as anything and just the fact that we cared enough to be there meant a lot to them and the woman who ran the school told me through a translator she said you know you may not think you're being helpful but you know, we tell our families these people came all the way America to America from America because they love your kids, and so yeah, that that was a a very special experience. Sure, I can imagine. Yep. I mean, those kids. I mean, I guess you have still some occasional contact by email with the the teachers there, or I, or maybe the language barrier is too great. <laughs> well, you know, that I, I found through this, you know, language it's it's both essential and irrelevant was sort of my feeling that, you know, from a day-to-day -day standpoint, it was a challenge because they could, there was only one teacher who could barely speak any English. I don't speak Chinese. So from a practical standpoint, it was tricky. But, you know, at the same time, I could show up 20 years from now and these women would treat me like an old friend. And, and so you realize somehow these connections occur anyway. And, and I have stayed in touch with one of the teachers there, you know, we email periodically and it's very simple. You know, I, I think of you today kind of thing. Mm. And, and so, you know, it does continue. Mm. That's nice. It's great. And the kids, um, I mean, I know living in Asia, you're exactly right that, that culturally kids and they grow up, of course, so that eventually they're grown up. They, they are kept at home a lot of the time and it's, it's an embarrassment mm. to the family and it's, it's tough. These, kids will grow up and hopefully they'll have the memories. Yeah, and that's one thing as a short-term volunteer, you I always just assume once you're gone, you know, you're you're forgotten pretty quickly even though this experience obviously will stay with me the rest of my life, but you you just hope, you know, in some way that there's something inside maybe that that still stuck around somehow. Well, I mean, I I doubt that those kids will forget. It's not every day that you meet uh a big nose foreigner from <laughs> from America, a big dork from the U.S. who shows up. Yeah, right. Yeah, it uh, should be something that they, if they, even if they can't articulate it, something that they will remember for some time. Okay, our next stop was Ecuador, back in Latin America. What did you do there, and and why did you pick there, and um, what was it like? Uh, in Ecuador, we were with a group of scientists and researchers who are studying the cloud forest in the Andes Mountains. And the ultimate goal here is to sort of see how climate change is affecting the area. And, you know, my feeling was, you know, I mentioned I don't have kids, but I, I thought, you know, if I did have a child, 
climate change would scare the hell out of me. And so I, you know, I wanted to try and understand it better and try and do something to help. And, and in a lot of ways, I thought this was one of the more beneficial trips because my understanding was that the researchers can run more projects when they have volunteer labor. And then we were able to do some of the grunt work on the data collection side, data entry that they don't have to do. And at, at the same time for me as a volunteer, you know, I got to see the Andes in a way that I wouldn't have been able to otherwise, because we're, you know, we're working totally off the trail and you're with these scientists who, you know, just, they just, they can pinpoint these birds and plants. And, and it was just a, a really remarkable experience. And, and it was an isolated area. It was about a two hour hike uh, to get to where they were by, based because, there's no roads. So it was uh, a really interesting experience. Mm, sounds great. And how many how many volunteers were a part of that project? Uh, there were about eight of us. Uh, mm. Canadians, Americans, uh, people from the UK. There was an Australian gentleman. And that's the other thing that's interesting is, you know, when we were talking about interactions, it's not just the interactions between you and the locals. It's the interactions between the other volunteers. And it's even just Americans. So, you know, you wind up talking to people from, you know, I'm on the East Coast. You talk to people from the Midwest that you wouldn't talk to otherwise. And so there's this sort of melting pot experience that happens on multiple levels. Mm. The fifth stop was Palestine. And that was also an interesting one to read about in the book. How did you choose that, which seemed a bit of an outlier in terms of you know, destination and experience and well, hardship, to be to be honest. And and what was it like? You know, I really struggled with that experience for a long time. You know, I, I said in the book, I think I went with a fairly American attitude of what the, the, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is like. And, you know, I, uh, to, to see up close what these people deal with on a daily basis, it, it changed my view, obviously, of, of that area. And, and you know, and, and the funny thing is, it's, you know, we think of it in terms of, you know, the uh, bombings and killings, but you know, a lot of what they deal with is just annoyances on a daily basis. And, and when you go through the checkpoint, you know, to get into the to the West Bank, and, and, you know, you would see that people, a lot of Palestinians work in uh, Jerusalem, and so every day they go through this. I always tell people it's like going through the worst airport security of your life, but doing it two times a day, every day. And it's just... All of that sort of things, you know, people getting stopped for no reason, you know, it's just a, a thousand inconveniences. And I think the experience that really captured what it was like for me was in Hebron. And we walked through a market. And, and it, the thing with Hebron is there's a very small, powerful pocket of settlers there. And we walked through this basically now deserted market, but there was a fence over our heads. And the fence was there because the settlers in the building next door throw their trash down on the Palestinians below and the fence is there to catch the trash. Mm. And so you see that and you just think, you know, you have a certain sense of hopelessness, but again, the thing I sort of clung to was that, you know, you were talking with these Palestinian people and then it, it was changing how they see Americans. And then this ripple effect continues even today. I, I still stay in touch with these people, but um, yeah, it was a difficult experience. Yep. Okay. Last one is Kenya. The Kenyan, experience also sounded a bit, a bit uh, seemed a bit different to me to the other the other five I mean Kenya great place but I, I didn't get a I didn't really understand how you'd ended up there from reading the introduction to that sec section uh, the thing with Kenya was you know a lot of what was driving this was not having children and, and in Kenyan we were Kenya we were working at 
a children's home and we were working with all ages of kids and, and with infants. And, you know, from my own selfish standpoint, I think this was a way to kind of confront that. And again, I, you know, I had been thinking all along that I wanted to try and help someone else's child. And, uh, you know, as I'm sure you know, there's often a lot of criticism of, of people who volunteer in orphanages, some of which I, I understand because I, I worried about it myself. I worried that, you know, you show up and make some connection with the kid and then two weeks later you're gone and maybe that creates this cycle of abandonment. Mm. But this was a pretty stable environment. They had mothers who cared for the kids. There was an indomitable woman who had founded this whole place. And, you know, again, for me, it was really a lesson in what people can accomplish when they're just incredibly determined. And uh, that was the main takeaway for me was just the woman who had founded this home, kind of like the woman in China, had done so with nothing other than faith and determination. Right. Well, that that leads me to another question, and I, I just have a couple more. You've had a lot of experience of volunteerism, I think, more than more than almost everyone, um, because I think many Americans, although many Americans volunteer, many Americans do it through their through their church or through their through organized religion and. Volunteerism that's not based on that uh, happens much, much, much less, unfortunately. So what I was going to ask is, you know, if if I wanted to help people or orphaned cats or whatever it is, because <laughs> everyone has their own thing, um, what would you what would you recommend based on your experiences? I mean, should I, should I think about going to Kenya to help orphans, or should I? go down to my local soup kitchen and ask them if they need someone to make sandwiches on a Sunday morning. You know, there's, there's a lot of different ways to do it. What do you think? You know, I I think on some level it's, I mean, let's face it on a certain level, it's what you can afford. You know, there's going overseas isn't cheap. And, you know, for me, I was in a lucky position that this was driven by not having kids, but by not having kids, it, it sort of gave me the opportunity to travel because I'm not, paying for college education. So part of it is economic. I think ultimately it just has to be what feels right to you and what, what is the thing that is speaking to you and, and calling you. And, um, you know, and I, I've heard, as I think anyone who volunteers overseas, you hear like, well, we have plenty of needs at home. Why don't you do this at home? And you can do it at home. I just, uh, this is maybe me being Mr. Kumbaya again, but I, I think my view of home, especially from this experience, is much larger now, and, and to me, Kenya is home, and, and Palestine is home, and it's all home. And you know, I, I think you can take a broader view. And uh, I certainly think people should volunteer at home, but I think there are, are benefits to doing it abroad, just from what you learn about others, and what you learn about the world, and what you learn about yourself. Yep. I mean, as a 25-year expat, I certainly agree with you. Um, you get a very, very different perspective. The question that follows on from that is, you know, since since doing these trips and writing the book, do you still volunteer? Do you have any local organizations that you support, or are you back to watching cats on the internet and eating <laughs> takeaway pizza? <laughs> With Once your again, fine fine <laughs> pursuits. Let's let's be clear about this. Uh, for me, really, I've become a volunteer fundraiser. Part of the deal with the book is that all of my personal earnings from the book have gone back to the places where I volunteered. And that has been, without question, the most gratifying part of the whole 
book experience, and it's helped me stay connected with all of these groups. So, you know, we're doing a variety of projects. Uh, basically, I used my book advance, which was not huge, alas. <laughs> but, sure. And and when I've been able to sell books, you know, if I give talks or something. So, you know, it's an ongoing effort, and I've been mm. doing some side work to raise money for these projects. And so, you know, we're creating an operating fund for the school in China because they really only get by on tuition. They don't get any government assistance or anything. So it's these types of projects, and that's kind of what's consumed any of my free time over the last, you know, year and a half or so. Oh, that's great. It's um, You've developed lifelong links to these places, which I think is much – it's different from many people, that's for sure. Well, and the thing about having been there is I don't see this as – Charity, uh, to me, it's an investment. I've been there. I've seen what these people do. I want to invest in that. And that's, you know, I'm not Bill Gates. You know, so this is not huge sums of money. But for them, it is important. It is, you know, something they can use. So that's been terrific. Mm. Okay, here's my sort of last question, unless I think of another one. Um, <laughs> your you know, you, you said a couple of times to me, and it's very clear throughout the book, that a part of this whole journey was not having kids and you know being your father's son and and life ends what's the meaning of it what what did your wife think of the book what did she think of this quest i think you you addressed it very briefly in the book but i mean you could adopt kids if you wanted i don't know maybe that's too personal a question um no because as you said the book kind of lays it all out there and (laughs) Uh, yeah, writing a memoir is an interesting experience, and I, and I always, even though it's my story in my life, I, I always sort of viewed it as I'm a character, and for the reader, you know, you're only as interested as the character is interesting, and that sort of demands that you be honest, because the reader knows when you're not being honest, and so that was the rule I followed, uh, and, and when you're writing, too, you're in such isolation that you don't really think of, like, people actually reading it. And I think I told you the story about how my editor read the first draft and said, oh, it's so honest. I'm like, well, that's not good. <laughs> honest isn't good. Yeah, as far as my wife, I should say, my wife, unlike me, has actual skills. She's she's a nurse practitioner. She volunteered in Haiti maybe 20 years ago, uh, providing medical services. Uh, this was difficult. It was difficult for both of us because we are not the kind of people who just sit and talk about our feelings. And in a lot of ways, the book was helpful because it forced us to. But I should say, too, and this is in the book, you know, when my wife was about four years old, her sister was killed by a drunk driver. And then one of her first memories is seeing the look on her father's face when he told her this. And, and I've always, in my own amateur psychiatrist kind of way, have thought that something told this little girl that, you know, you, you're not going to put yourself through that. And so I've always thought she denies it. I've always thought that was part of her reluctance to having kids. But, you know, we're, we're in a good place these days and i think the book has been a part of that and you know it wasn't easy but i think the ultimate outcome has been good for both of us great i mean i really enjoyed uh reading it and uh you know traveling with you to to those places china as i said was was probably my favorite but then i thought the palestine section was was also really you know really powerful and costa rica and ecuador i would like to go new orleans is on my list, and, and Kenya I've been a number of times, and, and it's a great place. Very welcome. Well, yeah. yep. my, my, the favorite comment I got about the book was someone told me it's like 
Mother Teresa made scratcher marks, which, <laughs> which, I, which I love that because I, I wanted the book to be funny, and, and I think it is. And, and, you know, there's a lot of fish out of water aspects to this. And uh, so, you know, I hope it, you know, both touches people and makes them laugh. Yep. I mean, it was, it was a really good read. I enjoyed it. And thanks for right. making the time today. Oh, this has been terrific. I appreciate it. You've been listening to Terms of Reference, a weekly podcast from aidpreneur.com. Find us on iTunes or at www.aidpreneur.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time.